0: if you would turn uh, in your Bibles to uh, Amos uh, chapter 5. Uh, so in the, ch- in the church Bibles, that's page 920. Uh, in the large print, uh, page 1429. And this evening, we're, g- we're going to look at verses 1 uh, to 17. Uh, just to say, though, this, uh, after tonight, uh, we'll have a, a three-week break from Amos, because uh, Paula and I are on uh, holidays for two weeks, so we won't be here to, uh, to preach on Amos. And then in three weeks' time, uh, I'll be preaching in the morning as uh, Tim and Megan are away on holiday, uh, so we'll be back in Amos basically in a month's time. Uh, but tonight we are in chapter five. Uh, and just to say before we read this, uh, last week and this week, and in other passages in Amos, Uh, We speak, because Amos does, of God's judgment, his wrath. Uh, We speak of hell. Uh, And it's hard to talk about these things. But uh, we preach the gospel. Uh, And the gospel is good news. And there is no good news if there was nothing that we needed to be saved from, i.e. no bad news. So we preach the gospel... Uh, by showing what we are saved from. Uh, and we see that clearly uh, in the book of Amos, uh, and we see that in chapter 5, uh, but we don't just see God's judgment, we see the call to seek God and live. So there is a way from judgment, a way to God that is good news. So as we, 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 we uh, feel the weight of the bad, uh, I want tonight to, to glory in the good news. And we find that in Jesus Christ. So let's look at Amos chapter 5. And I'll read uh, verses 1 to 17 of this chapter. Hear this word Israel. This lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing." Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turned midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land... The Lord is his name. With a blinding flesh, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, You will not drink their wine, for I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. This is God's word. And I've called this sermon, Attending Your Own Funeral. Uh, Every uh, December in in our house, uh, we always read the novel, A Christmas Carol, uh, by Charles Dickens, uh, as a family. Uh, It's like a, a tradition that we have. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story of A Christmas Carol. Uh, so I'm not going to go over it for you. Uh, you, can, you can read it for yourself. But when the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come takes Ebenezer Scrooge into the future, Mr. Scrooge hears a conversation. Somebody has died, and the words that they speak about this man who has died are horrendous. It's like going to your funeral and hearing the eulogies and finding they put you down completely. I was reading recently of a lady that had terminal cancer and decided to have her funeral before she died. And so she got to hear all the eulogies, and of course they were all, all lovely, but not so for Scrooge. He comes to find that the words... The terrible words spoken about this dead man were about himself. And the conversation haunts him. And it's part of the the way for his eventual change in his life at the end of the story. And something similar is happening in Amos chapter 5. Israel is really invited to attend its own funeral. What we have in verse 1 is described as a lament, and a lament is a song sung to mourn the loss of a loved one or a friend. It can also be sung to mourn the loss of a city or a nation, as we see in the biblical book of Lamentations. But what's very unusual is that the person being lamented is not normally there. It's like being at your own funeral and hearing those terrible eulogies, like Mr. Scrooge. But the purpose is to convince the nation that they need to repent. Last week, we saw how God brought disaster upon Israel so that they might return to him. Well, look at Amos chapter 4 and verse 12 again. God says, Therefore, because they haven't returned this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. Amos doesn't define there what this is that God will do, except we can read from chapter 4 that it is worse than what has come before. In Amos chapter 5, we see what this is, what the judgment of God looks like. And God speaks of a coming disaster so destructive that there is no opportunity after it to return. And so the the lament that we see here is to persuade the people before it's too late, seek the Lord and live. Now the song here has a, a specific structure which helps us to understand the point of it. Uh, In Hebrew poetry, it's called a chiasm. And the structure is such that there is a a climax in the middle and everything going to it and from it corresponds to each other. I'm going to show you a a picture of what uh, you might, hopefully you can see this, what 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 I'm talking about. Uh, You'll see there that there are four words and all four of these words are what we can describe this poem as. There is a lamentation, an exhortation, an accusation, and an identification. And so we see that going into the identification of who this God is, and we see it coming out as well. So we're going to look at the four words of the poem, which means we're not going to look at it verse 1 down to the end. We're going to look at it in this kind of structure. If you don't understand any of that, don't worry. As long as you've got a Bible open and you've got numbers of the verses... I can tell you where we're going and you can follow along. So, first of all, we see lamentation. Lamentation. The terrible judgment of God. And we see this at the beginning and the end of this song. So, in verse 1, we see the call again to hear this word, like we've seen in chapter 3 and 4. But this is the lament concerning you, Israel. So, again, it's unusual. The, The person whose funeral it is is there. But in verse 2, we see the words of the lament. Notice verse 2 speaks in the past tense as if the event has already happened. And verse 2 speaks of a complete military defeat. So notice the word fallen there, fallen. It means to have fallen in battle. Uh, We speak of it today. If If a city is defeated in battle, we talk about the city as being fallen. And the fall is complete because they will not rise again. The people are deserted. No one will lift them up because no one is left to lift them up. And the sadness of this in verse 2 is that it's virgin Israel that is fallen. And the fact that Israel is described as a virgin makes it more sad because a virgin before she's married here is full of potential, full of anticipation, and all that Potential and all that anticipation is, is gone. It's all ruined because she has fallen. And verse 3 continues that theme of military defeat. Uh, notice that the, a city has a thousand soldiers and ten are left. Well, that city then, uh, or a hundred are left, that city then becomes a town of a hundred. And they go out to fight, and then only 10 return. And if you combine those two, 99% of the army is gone. It's a complete destruction, a complete wipeout. And that's what happened to Israel when Assyria came in 722 BC. It took Israel away. They were utterly ruined. And the sadness of this is what's described at the end in verses 16 and 17. This isn't a happy time. It's devastating. Uh, We read, by the way, that God in, in Ezekiel says he does not delight in the death of the wicked. This is, by the way, God's word. It's God's lament. And the sadness of the judgment that is seen here is is in verses 16 and 17. Notice there are three words, or at least there are in the Hebrew. Wailing, cries of anguish, and weeping. And wailing is used three times. It's utter sadness, utter devastation. And notice the weeping and the wailing is in every place in verse 16. It's in the streets, the public square, the vineyards. Even the farmers are are summoned to weep. Farmers don't normally come to be mourners. Uh, In these days, they would have professional mourners. The farmers aren't professional mourners. They're professional farmers. But there's not enough people even to summon. So they summon the farmers from their fields to weep. But in verse 17, I want you to notice something important here. God gives the reason why there is wailing, anguish, and weeping everywhere. It says at the end of verse 17, For, this is the reason, I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Now there is an allusion here to Exodus. In Egypt, when God judged Egypt for their sin, God passed through Egypt with the angel of death that killed the firstborn in Egypt. But Israel, when they had the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, were passed over. But here, the judgment is not on Egypt. The judgment is on Israel. God passes through Israel. He doesn't pass over in mercy. He passes through in judgment. And the picture here is of terrible judgment and its aftermath. This is speaking of God's wrath against people who have rebelled against him. And this is the kind of language that Jesus uses in the New Testament when he speaks of hell. Six times in Matthew's Gospel... Jesus speaks of God's judgment on sin, and he describes the effects with the following phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, six times in Matthew's gospel alone. The same kind of language as wailing, cries of anguish, and weeping, you see? Now chapter 4 of Amos spoke of disasters that came so that people would return to God. But those disasters are small in comparison to this. As I said last week, God's final judgment, which is coming, is worse than anything that can possibly happen on earth. Now you may have heard the phrase used even flippantly, hell on earth. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. God's judgment is coming, and it is worse than anything that could possibly be on earth. And it's coming on all those who have rebelled against him, against his his good and his just and his right rule. We'll see his just and right rule uh, as we go on. But everybody, you and me included, have sinned against this God. Everyone. We've all ignored the call to return to him. And so all of us face this judgment of God. Every one of us. Just let that sit for a moment. That's a serious thing, isn't it? But this chapter... Is here that we may avoid this judgment. That's why it's here. So how can we avoid it? Because I'm sure if, you, if you've let that sit and you feel the weight of the seriousness of our rebellion against God, surely your next question should be, well, how can I escape this? Well, that's where we see the exhortation, the merciful way of escape. Three times we see the words... Seek and live combined together in these, this chapter. Uh, verses 4, verse 6, and verse 14. We see those words. Seek, live. Seek, live. Seek, live. So in verse 4, there is judgment coming, but you can live. Now to live here means escaping the judgment of God. There is opportunity here for life rather than death. Death. And it comes through seeking him. Now to seek here means to turn to God in repentance, to submit to his word. Now we'll see it more clearly defined as we go through the other uh, verses that say seek. But first of all, uh, Amos wants to point us to what not to seek in verse 5. He says, do not seek Bethel, do not seek Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba, For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. We see three places here, which were centers of worship for God's people, and they had a special significance. Uh, We see Bethel, which was what we saw this morning, actually, funnily enough, uh, in in the Bible reading, where Jacob met God and received from God the promise that he would become a great nation. And it was where God's people expected to experience God's blessing, just like Jacob did. So Jacob experienced the blessing of God there. People went there because they expected to receive it. Then we see Gilgal. That was the place where Israel first, uh, when they went into the promised land, set up an encampment. And so it represented to Israel their inheritance of the promises of God. And then Beersheba was over the border from Israel in Judah, which is why they had to journey to it there. And it was there that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he would be with them. So when they went to Beersheba, it represented God's promised presence with his people. Now those representations are good things. God did promise those things. But those places of religious devotion became places of false worship. Israel went there to try and gain a religious experience, but they were not seeking the Lord himself. So the equivalent for us today is when we are seeking life in anything that is not the Lord. So for example, you might think you can escape God's judgment if you come to church. Here I am in this building, in this holy place, which isn't, this is not a holy place, by the way, this is, this is just a building. You can't escape judgment by turning up here, by just turning up. You escape God's judgment by responding to what is preached here, not just by turning up. You might think you can escape God's judgment if you have some kind of special uh, experience, some, some nice feeling. If I have a feeling, some, I'll, I'll escape. No, don't seek that. You might think you can escape God's judgment by seeking just to do good things. And, 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 and those good things will add up to, to more bad things and I'll be good enough. No, you, you can't escape doing that because your bad, bad things will always outweigh the good. You'll never be good enough. You may think, well, I'm, I'm born into a Christian family, I've, I've got Christian parents, or my spouse is a Christian. No, no. You won't escape God's judgment through that either. Only the person of God himself can enable you to escape from judgment. Because in the end, all those things like Gilgal and Bethel will be reduced to Nothing. Well, verse 6 expands on verse 4. Seek the Lord and live. Verse 4 says, seek me. Verse 6 gives me a name, the Lord, the God of Israel. We seek him and live. Or, verse 6 says, he swallows us up in judgment. It describes God there as a consuming fire. And at the end of verse 6, we read, Bethel will have no one to quench it. In other words, all those places all those things that you think will help you escape God's judgment, they won't help you at all. Not at all. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. So what does it mean to seek the Lord? How how can I seek the Lord? Well, verse 14 says that to seek the Lord is to seek good, not evil, that you may live. So good here means moral good, basically following God's law, living a a holy life. As God's people here, they'd been given God's law, so they were to live according to that and, and not evil. And verse 15 elaborates further, hate evil, love good. Amos says that this will look like maintaining justice in the courts, which we'll look at in a moment, but... The problem we've got, though, is I've just said you you can't seek God by just trying to be good and have your good outdo the bad. So how can God then say, seek good that you may live? Well, when we're seeking good, we are seeking all the parts of God's word, including those parts that speak of the sacrifices for sin. So for Israel, if they were seeking good in the Old Testament they would seek to take their sacrifices to the, the temple and have the pre-sacrifice there for their sin. But for us, to seek good means to seek Jesus Christ and look to his sacrifice for sin on our behalf. And Jesus dies for our sin on the cross in our place. And then as we trust in his sacrifice, he gives us his Holy Spirit, which enables us to live according to God's word. And so we can seek good, not evil, and live. So, in other words, we can't do that in our own strength. We can only do that as we seek the Lord through the sacrifice Jesus Christ has made. Well, what is the result of, of seeking the Lord? Look at the end of verse 15. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Now, this is a troubling verse, if you just read that again, because surely you, you, you want me to say, definitely, the Lord God Almighty will have mercy. Surely, if, if we're told to seek the Lord and live, there's, there's assurance of life, not a, not a perhaps. I want more than a a Perhaps. But this verse relates specifically here to the remnant of Joseph in history. If, if they seek the Lord here, they may still suffer the earthly consequences of their sin. Assyria may still come. But it doesn't mean that their repentance has no value whatsoever. Because those who seek the Lord will live even if the consequences on earth of what they have done may remain. So here's how it works for us. If if I repent of my sin and I turn to God and I seek him and I trust in the sacrifice Jesus has made, all my sin is forgiven. I have an eternal home in heaven secure. I have all the blessings and benefits of being a follower of Jesus. But that does not mean that every consequence of what I have done in the past is wiped away completely. It might, perhaps. But even if it doesn't, it does not devalue the repentance and turning to God because in doing so, I have eternal life. The lesson here is that the uncertainty of the earthly outcome, if you like, Does not diminish the value of our repentance. If we seek God, we may still suffer for some of the things we've done in the past, but we will have true and eternal life. And this is a wonderful word to have in the light of this lament. There is an opportunity to escape God's wrath, seek Him. Now, for you and me, that means putting our trust in Jesus Christ, in what he has done for us. Peter says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we must be saved. Not Bethel, not Gilgal, not Beersheba. Not anywhere, not anyone, not anything. Jesus Christ and him alone. He only can save us from the wrath of God. And so I urge you this evening, turn to Jesus and be saved from the terrible judgment of God. So we've seen the lamentation and we've seen the exhortation. But there may be some of you here this evening who may think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm I'm really, I'm really not that bad. Well, here's why Amos brings the accusation. He shows us we are bad. We have sinned. And what we've done is we have upended God's moral order. The accusation is summed up in verse 7. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Now the words justice and righteousness will come up regularly in the rest of Amos. And they are paired together this way actually 50 times in the Old Testament. What do they mean? Well justice can be defined in this way. It is reestablishing the moral order of God's creation. It's making right what went wrong from the fall into sin. Now this is both a, a negative and a, a positive uh, outworking. So in the negative sense, we have retributive justice, where someone is punished for doing wrong and rewarded often for doing right. But more often in the Bible, when we see justice, it is more to do with restorative justice. Restoring or reestablishing the moral order that was there in the beginning of creation that has been lost in the fall. And that usually means helping others obtain the benefits of living in God's world and in God's kingdom. And that means usually... It means helping those who, because of their situation, are unable to live in the benefits of God's world and God's kingdom in the same way as others. So it means usually helping the poor and the vulnerable who, by nature of their position in this world, do not receive the benefits that they, as God's image bearers, would have had at creation. In the Bible, the vulnerable tend to be, in uh, Zechariah chapter 7 describes it this way, as the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, and the poor. But today we might expand that out and say this also includes the refugee, the migrant worker, the, the homeless, many single parents, the elderly, the disabled, certainly the unborn, and so on. The standard of what is just is based on God's righteousness, what God says is right. And hence you have justice and righteousness paired together. And so when the summary sin of Israel is turning justice into bitterness, it means that what should be good, justice, restoring God's good creation, is turned into bitterness It's the opposite of what justice should do. So rather than helping the widow, the fatherless, and the poor, bringing them up to enable them to have the benefits of being in God's kingdom, they push them down further. When righteousness is cast to the ground, it means that what God says is right is disregarded. And then in verses 10 to 13, we see some specific examples of how Israel did this. And what I hope to, to do is that we can see how we do the same kind of things. Now, because of time, I, I could quite easily show how this applies to society as a whole. Um, if you want to see, for example, uh, what, how this works out with what happened on Thursday, with the conversion therapy ban and the U-turn and all of that kind of thing. Uh, I can speak to you about that afterwards. But that's an example of of things being turned the wrong way around, you see? But I want to look, rather than at a, a societal government level, look at our own individual lives. How do we cast righteousness to the ground and turn justice into bitterness? Well, let's look at these examples. Verse 10, we read about justice in the courts. So, they hated the one who upholds justice and who tells the truth. So, when someone comes to you and says, This isn't right, what you're doing is wrong, this is against the law of the land, or this is against what God's word says, which happens in church because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we hold ourselves accountable to God's word. How do you respond when that happens? Do you detest them? Hate them for point it, pointing it out and say, I don't want to hear this. Teenagers, when your, your parents say you can't do something that everyone else is doing because it's not right, do you think, well, they're just stupid, aren't they? Do you do that? That's doing the same thing as here. In verse 11, we see another example. People manipulating the system so it works against the poor and to their own advantage. So here they're not doing anything illegal, but it is immoral. They are putting high taxes on the poorest so that the rich can have their big houses and lush vineyards. Well, how do we, we do this? I mean, I'm not, in, I'm not responsible for the tax policy of our country. I'm sure neither are you. Well, we should be, for example, considerate of the source of some of the goods that we buy? Are we buying things that that are sourced by the poor and the, and the vulnerable being exploited? Uh, we do this kind of thing when we, we could help somebody, but we don't because it's an inconvenience. Now, we may not build big houses and lush vineyards, but we do seek to build a reputation, don't we? And it's easy to participate in the putting down of others to build our own reputation up. And again, we we can do this in the workplace, can't we? When we put people down to build ourselves up. Or again, if you're at school, you can push down those who are in the uncool group in order to make yourself look good in your group. That's the kind of thing going on here. Verse 12 speaks of coercion and corruption. Now, we may not oppress the innocent, but do we ever assume that someone is guilty of something or spread gossip about somebody without knowing the full facts? We may not take bribes, but do we only help those from whom we can get something in return? You see? Then verse 13, this is a very contemporary verse for our Culture today, therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Now, this is not saying it is prudent to keep quiet in evil times, but rather the prudent are kept quiet. In other words, those who have something to say against evil are told to keep your mouth shut. It's basically a version of Old Testament council culture. That's what's going on here, where people are stopped from speaking out. Because it may offend or upset. And woe betide anyone who speaks out. Because the days are evil. Now we can be like this too. We can be like this when we make ourselves unapproachable to speak to. Because we get too easily offended. Or we can get too easily offended when someone points out our sin. Or we can get too easily offended when we hear of someone else's. Or we can have a reputation for for getting angry really easily and it can cause everyone to walk around on eggshells around you so that they don't speak because they fear if they do speak, you're just going to blow up. Now, you may not, after saying those things, have an affinity with those particular sins. Maybe not. I don't know. I do. I do. But all of us have... Played our part in upending God's moral order. All of us have. We've all turned justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Can you honestly say you've never done anything of that kind? Honestly? Well, verse 12 tells us that God knows all of it. Notice verse 12, it's a terrifying verse. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. I know, God says, I know it all. The God who makes the accusation against us is the God who knows every single thing we've ever done. And he describes the offenses here as great. The terrible judgment of God is is absolutely deserved. And finally, we come to the fourth and final section of this song. Right in the middle of the song, Amos takes the time to show Israel who they are sinning against. And this is important, by the way, because when we're thinking of justice, it's important to remember that who we sin against is very important in terms of how serious the crime is. If I squish an ant in my garden... I'm not going to have the police come and knock on my door. If I do the same to a person, they'll be there very quickly. And God is a far higher authority and being than any human. It's very serious to sin against him. And the final thing we see is the identification of this God. The Lord is his name. It's interesting to note in verse 8... Uh, which speaks of who God is, comes right after the summary accusation in verse 7, which speaks of upending God's created order. It's interesting for this reason. In verse 8, the God who is identified as the creator, the one who makes order and crucially is able to upend it when he judges the world, does so. In other words, he's saying, you've upended my moral order now you watch me upend the created order. I'm going to upend creation in judgment. So look at verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. Now, Pleiades and Orion are star constellations. Uh, they were thought to be, at the time, opposite constellations. So there is a sense of, order and balance here the Lord it says turns midnight into dawn and darkness to light notice there is rhythm there is order in Genesis 1 when God says let there be light he brings order into the chaos of the darkness and so in this verse God here is saying I am able to reverse the order on the people of Israel who are trying in their sin to bring darkness in overturning justice. But notice the end of verse 8. God upends this creation in order to judge. He calls for the waters of the sea to pour on the face of the land. Now that might sound familiar. Where did God unleash the chaos of the sea... And of the waters all over the earth. Of course, it was Genesis 6 in the flood. When God judged the sin of the earth by bringing in a new, and brought in a new humanity. And so what we see here is, the, is God being the God who reverses evil. The evil that Israel brings on the world by reversing his order of creation. And what is the identity of the Lord who does this? The Lord is his name. Rebellion against God is an attempt by humanity to reverse the created order. It's to say, I'm God. I'm God. I'm in charge. That's what we teach the children. What does sin mean? Shut up, God. I'm in charge, not you. That's what sin is, It's to make yourself God. And what Amos is telling us is, you can, you can try and do that, you're not God, the Lord is his name. And in verse 9, we see how this destructive power is unleashed on the stronghold and on the fortified city. For Israel, they were judged by God unleashing his wrath upon them. Don't think for one minute God will not do this. He will, unless we seek him. So I want to conclude by just turning our attention to the one who took God's wrath for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just think about him for a moment. Jesus suffered the full, terrible judgment of God for us, He literally went to hell for us. All of our great sins he died for in his death on the cross. And as Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the created order? Light was turned to darkness. There was no sin you could accuse Jesus of. All of it was done in our place. But on the third day... Darkness was turned to light as Jesus rose from the dead. Look again at verse 9. I want to read it a different way and relate it to Jesus. With a blinding flash, Jesus destroyed the stronghold of the grave and brings the evil kingdoms to ruin. Jesus Christ defeats sin and death and hell for us. And you can participate in that wondrous victory Because he was judged for us. We don't have to suffer that. And one day, the work of bringing justice and righteousness will be complete when God makes a new heaven and a new earth and everything is turned the right way up. Now, I want you each, just for a moment, to look into your future. Look to the future. You will have a funeral one day. Where are you going to be? You are going to face God one day. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. Let's just have a, a moment of quiet as we th- just consider these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you we can call you our Father. We recognize ourselves in these accusations. We have tried to put ourselves in your place. And we don't deserve your mercy. But here we read, seek the Lord and live. And we thank you that that means seeking Jesus, the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that for any... Anyone here tonight that has not sought the Lord, has not sought you through Jesus Christ, that tonight would be the time where they do this. That they would seek you and find you and live. And for those of us that have, may we keep by the power of your Holy Spirit seeking good and not evil giving ourselves fully to your service and sharing this glorious, wonderful news with a world that so desperately needs to hear it. And to that end, we pray, Lord, for the days to come as we have opportunity to share the gospel at the Jubilee Lunch and the Carnival and the Holiday Bible Club. And we we pray that many would seek you and live. And we thank you we can ask these things in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. And if you have questions uh, about anything that I've said tonight, then please feel free to come and ask afterwards. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. But we're going to respond uh, and, uh, to, by singing. Uh, Our our final song speaks of this God, the the God of all creation, the holy God. Uh, But the song speaks of a holy God, but reminds us that this holy God is the one that rescues us from our failings by giving us his only son. So let's stand and sing of the gospel, the good news, only a holy God. Let's stand together. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Seek him and live. Amen.